0: Casey. And I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar at Dash of Murder, a true crime podcast with an element of baking.
1: What are we having this week?
0: So, this week we are having minty mango mojitos. Yes, I love me a good mojito, even though mine is virgin because I can't have rum right now. But hey, uh. I was at the <laughs> store today and I found some non alcoholic wine. Oh! yes, Stella Rosa has some non-alcoholic wine. So I'm so excited. I'm going to try that tonight. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so good. So anyway, with these mojitos, though, I was thinking my thought process with this, (laughs) uh, with the (laughs) mintiness of it, we'll, uh, how do I word this? Because I don't want to give anything away, but the killer in this story or the bad, really he does a lot of different Yeah different things so so the reason why I'm doing the minty mango mojitos is because the night stalker a lot of his victims say that he had really really bad breath yeah and just really (laughs) bad teeth even Mm -hmm. um so I was like damn that guy needs some mint (laughs) in his life (laughs) so then that's kind of what brought around that um and then the mango I didn't tell Emily why I added the mango to it. I wanted her, I didn't know if she would catch on. So, do you have any idea, anything um, about a minty mango mojito? Let me think. Not related to the case. Oh, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, this was one of mine and Emily's very first, well, this was mine and Emily's very first drink together. It was? Yeah, in Whistler, Canada. We had these. We did.
1: Yeah. <laughs> remember that? There was I remember one drinking night. a mojito, but I didn't remember that it was mango. Yeah, I just yeah. remember the mint taste <laughs> more than the mango. Oh my god! Yeah, there was one
0: when we were in Whistler, Canada, together, which is an amazing place. Oh, I want to go back so bad. Yeah, it was so cool. Um, we, there, we were both eighteen at the
1: time, or I don't know. We were both no. Both. I was eighteen. <laughs> you were nineteen because we went into one province and Casey could get into this club but I couldn't because I was only 18 and I tried to sneak in and it
0: didn't work out so good the only time Emily has ever tried to to do that like Emily's not the type that she doesn't go out to the bars or anything like even after she legally could so I was was, so embarrassed this was was out of character for her so anyway Yeah, there was one night where we all got drinks, and that was the
1: one that you and I got. Yeah. That was my very first mojito. If you're wondering why I could drink the mojito, it's because we went to a different province, and it was legal if you were 18 to drink, but the other one wasn't, so I don't know.
0: Yeah, I know. There's different provinces in Canada. I mean, our Canada listeners understand.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But we weren't sure about it cuz we're american right <laughs> you have to be 21 here so oh gosh that was such a that was so funny and then the same night these this is so oh off God. topic this is such a good one <laughs> these good australian story. guys were trying to ask you ask casey where this um club or bar was in case they such a thick like accent. They did. And Casey thought she was, they were trying to ask her at the time. And she was like, it's 1130. And she said it like five times. And, and one of them was just like, oh my God. And like walked away. He like stormed off. Because I, he's asking me where this bar is. And I'm just
0: like, it's 1130.
1: You idiot. Like you <laughs> were like, it's 1130.
0: And then he throws his hands up in the air and storms storms off and his friend turns around like i'm some kind of monster and says he was trying to ask you where the bar was, and, was late. and you were standing behind me you knew what he was saying the whole time
1: i'm you, sorry I, I let that happen
0: you knew that whole exchange was happening.
1: you just let me do it oh gosh. oh we had good times in Canada. Yeah, that was a fun trip.
0: That was a oh, fun man. night.
1: If those guys ever listen to this episode, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I really do. I really love Australian accents. I usually, I mean, it's not, they're not that they're hard not to that understand. not that hard
1: to understand at all.
0: I don't. But for some reason, <laughs> I mean, I was also, I did have a mojito before that. So. so. Oh, man. <sighs> anyway so the night stalker (laughs) this is that was way off topic yeah sorry but let's go back to the night stalker so
1: so we decided to do this case because the recent netflix documentary show on it came out a few weeks ago and that's called night stalker hunt for the hunt for a serial killer so we both watched it
0: Mm -hmm. it is so good if you haven't watched it pause right now go and watch it it's four like 50 minute videos each yeah for 50 minute <laughs> episodes. episodes that's it so good and then come yeah. back and listen to us it's a very
1: good documentary yeah um so basically what we're gonna do like we did for the other ones that have movies and stuff is kind of cover the case in the way that the documentary does so the documentary Uh, opens up with Detective Gil Carrillo, uh, who worked for Homicide Bureau, L.A. County Sheriff at the time. Don't know if he's still working there or is retired or whatever. Um, And it kind of follows mostly him and his partner, Detective Frank Salerno, who is also Homicide Bureau, L.A. County Sheriff um, Department, and kind of their investigation and the way they uncovered the case which I thought was an interesting way to cover it.
0: I really, I just like their whole story too. Yeah. Initially, I was kind of annoyed that they, because they started off by talking about Gail. Gail is sharing his life and how he came up, and you'll you'll go more into this, but I got kind of annoyed with it initially, because I'm like, come on, get to the murder. I don't really <laughs> care about this detective. Like, But you really actually end up, it, it's really invested. Heart, yeah, it's really actually heartwarming, like, hearing
1: his whole story. Casey and I both texted each other, or snapped at each other yesterday, and we were both like, why are we both crying right now? I was only, like, maybe the, the, a half hour ahead of you in the same episode, too, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, okay. literally had me crying several times. Yeah. And I, I do, like, if people are like, how can you talk about this and be heartless? Like, I do cry, but, like, not... On the podcast so I'm yeah. not a heartless person I swear. Okay <laughs> anyway so Gil is a Vietnam veteran. He's married to Pearl um, Carrillo and he became a cop after college. Like Casey said they they do a little more like about his life. Um, we're already talking about a lot so yeah I just thought I'd give that little
0: background and then that's, move on. That's a good point but the one thing that I do like about Gil is he said that uh, when he was in the military, his whole goal was he was going to come back. Oh, yeah. And he was going to date Pearl again because she had broken up with him mm-hmm. while he was overseas. And so he was so angry at her. So he was going to date her again just to break up with her. And then they ended up getting married. Yeah, <laughs> That's cute.
1: Yeah, I think That's so, funny. too. Meet cute. <laughs> um, And then March 23rd, 1981 is when Gil became a homicide detective after only nine and a half years of being a cop, which I guess is a relatively short time to become a detective because it was pretty impressive for him. So um, and then Detective Frank Salerno was like the big time cop and everybody knew his name because he had worked on he's been working as a homicide detective for a long time and he worked on another famous case called the hillside strangler which was also in LA which uh, we'll have to do that sometime. <laughs> yeah, that, right. That was interesting. And I had never heard of that before. Had you?
0: No, I hadn't. And it's really neat cuz I think Salerno was talking to Gil at one point. He's like this is this is never going to happen again, you know. You know, I mean, hardly any homicide detective deals with serial killers. Mhm. And then to deal with it twice is unheard of. So even Salerno was like, yeah, that was a a once-in-a-lifetime case. Never going to happen again. And here he is.
1: Yeah, That is
0: crazy. What are the odds of that? I know. Well, I was saying that, like, with... I always bring it back to, like, this would be a bad movie. But, like, it would be a bad (laughs) sequel because it would be, like, I would assume that this movie that I'm making up in my head right now is about Frank Salerno. So if you were to make a movie about that where it's, like, this... This detective solves this case, and it's the Hillside Strangler, all this stuff. That's one movie in itself. Mm-hmm. And then the sequel is another serial killer case that he has to solve. And it's yeah. like, that would just be unbelievable at that point. At that point, you'd be like, okay, what's up with this guy? Like, why why is he solving all these like, serial killer cases when yeah. that barely ever happens?
1: Yeah. But also, like, L.A., I feel like L.A. and like, that time, like, 60s through 80s had mm-hmm. a lot of killers there. Wasn't Zodiac in L.A.?
0: I could be wrong. <sighs> I'm not sure. I just know that... Now I need to know. Was he the one that would kill the prostitutes? There was one that would kill prostitutes, I think, that was in California.
1: Oh, uh, well, it, w- it was San Francisco. So okay. yeah, so still California, California, but California was like the land of cults and stuff. And I was like, I wouldn't want to live there at that time. Well, it was interesting because at one point in the the very beginning
0: of the um show, the show, the series, they were saying that uh, L.A. <laughs> was, you know, the place you wanted to be. It didn't seem like anything bad ever happened. Only yeah. good things happened in L.A. But then there's this one guy who I think is a journalist and he's talking and he's like no there are lots of sides to LA and there's yeah. really really dark sides mm-hmm. as well which I didn't just a side note he that journalist wasn't I don't understand the guy he was in like a biker jacket oh yeah long hair zoe something <clears throat> yeah I didn't understand where he came from or how he
1: played into it, other than, like, he was interested in it and, like... I think he just covered it, so they were talking to him from, like, a reporter's standpoint, you know? Okay. Because,
0: yeah. like, I know that there were the two reporters that were, like, really big in it, which we'll introduce later. hmm But then there was this guy that was talking a lot, and I didn't think that he was very well introduced, because I had no idea who he was. Yeah. And he, like, almost looks
1: younger than everyone else, too. Yeah. <clears throat> oh okay so yeah so frank is like the big time you know kind of a celebrity among cops and gill was the youngest detective there so they were kind of this odd couple that they would later become partners on this case so march 17th 1985 is day one of this spree of crimes in this investigation and it happens to be saint patrick's day And Esther (laughs) Petzjar was at a thrift store and she saw a man pick up an ACDC hat and he had like a little devil on his hand. And then on her way home from work, someone speeds past her and swerves around and looks at her and it's the same guy she saw earlier when he has a bunch of like missing teeth and it's really gross. So creepy. So... She saw him that night for sure, and that would be really weird to like reflect on later if I were her. Mm-hmm. So, that night is the first crime, and it's in Rosemead. Um, when the police get there, the garage doors open, there's blood on the floor, and the ACDC hat is on the floor. And Gil and his partner go in, and at this time, he is not partnered to Frank yet. And um, a young woman named Dale Okazaki was shot in the forehead, and she was 34 years old. This is kind of amazing how they know this next detail, um, because Gil says Dale had put her hands on the countertop to see over it, and the killer was on the other side like waiting for her cuz he knew she was going to pop up and like look to see if he was there and that's when he shot her. And I'm like how do they how do they know these details? Can they tell that or are they getting that from a confession later, you know?
0: Right. I mean, you can fingerprint, and you can kind of probably see that hands were there at one point. Yeah. Um maybe the position of her body, like the way her knees were bent, they could tell that she was like half up and like coming out of a crouching situation or yeah. position or uh, but other than that yeah it's 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 really interesting how they how he described that. that situation yeah but I guess that's kind of part of being a detective is there's certain blanks that you have to kind of fill in yourself right. by assumptions I think
1: yeah which is why I probably couldn't be a detective. Not probably, I couldn't. <laughs> Just that cuz I I feel like I wouldn't come up with things like that on my own. I don't know. Right. I'm
0: too much of a uh, a real like I'm really bad at I I mean, you can tell by the way that I'm always saying, "Oh, that'd be a really bad movie." Like <laughs> because I'm like, "No, stuff like that only happens in movies." Mm-hmm. But that's the crazy part that I'm realizing more and more as we cover these things is no, they don't. They don't only really happen in movies. No. Like, this... Th- movies are scary. Crazy things s- are real. Are Because it's realistic,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, Dale's roommate, Maria Hernandez, came home, and she heard someone make a noise, like, intentionally, like, slap the hood of the car in the garage to make her turn around and, like, see the killer, and mm-hmm. she hel- holds up her hands to protect herself, and he fires a gun... And the bullet deflected off of the keys in her hand and knocked her to the ground. Right. I think that's so lucky. It's insane. And honestly, I wouldn't think that keys would be able to deflect a bullet. I feel like it'd go through right. anyway. Well, that's the thing is if you were using a higher
0: caliber, it would have. But he's using a twenty two. Right. And that's a pretty low caliber. So I think that that's why it was able to deflect. Because I was realizing that afterwards because um, I thought that same thing. Mm-hmm. And when they were talking about how the weapon was a twenty two, it makes more sense because yeah. you can shoot metal with a twenty two and it won't go through. Oh.
1: See, I didn't know that, so. Yeah. Um, Maria got up and ran to the front door. She, so she ran away, but then thought of, like, helping her roommate. So she came back and she thought he would go through the garage. So she went to the front door, but he comes out of the front door. <laughs> And she said, You shot me once. Do you have to shoot me again? And he just walks away, which is insane. Like, I don't know. His mentality, I guess. Like, oh, okay. Is it
0: almost like uh, how they respond to the situation? I don't know. It's just weird because. Th- this happens a lot with him is he picks and chooses who he wants mm-hmm. to kill and there's no rhyme or reason it no, seems it's like no
1: it's totally right. luck of the draw or you know i'm un- not lucky but, yeah you know.
0: but it's also that power i guess too like he just doesn't care who sees him yeah it's crazy um and
1: for that to be her response, too, you already know. shot me again. Like, she's
0: just like, I'm tired. Can we not do that? That's this?
1: crazy. I don't think I would be in the mind to say something snarky like that. I'd be like, blah, blah.
0: yeah. <laughs> like, no words. <laughs> but, like, and then he just, like, leaves out the front door and he's like, wait, what, what are you doing
1: here? Yeah. He's like, okay. I don't know. So, March 18th, 1985 um 40 minutes after dale okazaki's murder there was another murder in monterey park which is only a mile away and it is 30 year old woman siley Yu. um she was driving and was stopped um she was pulled out of her car and shot with the same caliber weapon 22 so they're thinking well gill is thinking it's possibly the same person who i mean what are the odds and maria gives some police details for a sketch which got compared to a sketch from an attempted kidnapping a while ago Mm -hmm. and it looks like the same person so Gil comes up with this theory that the killer got a thrill from seeing fear which he always wanted them to look at him because he wanted to see the fear which is why he shot dale as she's looking over the countertop and would slap the hood for maria to look at him and pull silently on you out of her car so that he could like see them which is a totally messed up thing you know well the thing with that too is that kind of makes sense
0: why he didn't kill maria because she sees him, and they're both kind of, like, startled, so he doesn't get that r- initial reaction of fear. It's more like, what wait, What are you doing out here? Yeah. Kind of thing. And then once he could react to where he would shoot her, she then becomes snarky. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of, so it's almost like that fear is kind of out of, out of that, and mm-hmm. then she's... And he's like, well, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. he moves on from there.
1: So, March 27th, 1985, which would be day 10, there's a double murder in Whittier County of Vincent and Maxine Zazara. And Vincent is 64 and Maxine is 44. So, older Mm -hmm. than the previous murders. Um, The killer had stepped on a plastic can to get in through the window, and the place was like ransacked when the police got there and he had taken about $40,000 of items um stolen it and then he shot Vincent as he was sleeping on the couch um and it was a 22 again and Maxine was stabbed above the vagina raped and he cut her eyes out and that is something so like I mean, shooting someone is bad enough. Like, to take someone's eyes out is really, really horrible. Like, everything he did to Maxine is really, really horrible. And it's different from whatever happened before. And then he doesn't do that again, either. Like, with the eyes. I know. That's
0: just so... It's just so weird. Because it's not his... He doesn't even have an M.O. I think that's what makes him so scary. Is he can just do whatever he wants.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, in the documentary they kind of tried to come up with a reason, but, you know, couldn't really figure it out of why he would do that. Like maybe she looked at him and he saw something in her he was like, Don't look at me or something like that and I don't know. Like it could it have been a snap
0: thing. That we'll find out, like that's something he commonly says is don't look at me. Yeah. Which is strange. So So maybe she refused to listen to him.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Um, But an important clue that will pop up a lot and what they first find at this scene is a shoe print left at their flower beds of a size 11 to 12 shoe, adult shoe. And the footprint is a key um, Mm -hmm. thing going on. Um, so then the documentary moves to Anastasia Haranis, who was six years old at the time. Um, she woke up, she was woken up and taken out of her home and she thought she knew him. So she was like, oh, I, I know this person. He looked sort of familiar to her. So she went with him and he told her to open up the glove department in the car that they were driving in. Department. (laughs) Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even catch myself. Compartment. Compartment. Glove compartment. <laughs> I would have kept talking because I didn't even hear myself say that. <laughs> um, to show her a gun. just And she said it was kind of like a just like, hey, this is here sort mm-hmm. of thing. And he made her like touch him. And then when they got to wherever they were going, he put her in a duffel bag to bring her into the home which oh my god and sexually assaulted her and she said she kept trying to get him to stop by saying like oh i have to go to the bathroom you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that just like she did that multiple times and it never really worked um and then he put her back in the bag as he took her out dropped her off at a gas station and was like go call nine one one for your family to come get you and left her And this is another drastic, drastic change in his previous crimes, and it's, it's more, to me, it's more scary when they're like this, where they just can change what they want. Well, yeah, that's the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. Like, at
0: least you can say, oh, gosh, I'm, you know, I'm his type, I'm the victim he'd go after, like, I have to be more careful, but literally everybody had to be more careful, mm because there was just no rhyme
1: or reason yeah. Nothing. And that is, it's, there were a series of child abductions and sexual assaults of children who were just abandoned in random places, like, all over the county. So, these were very different cases. So, Gill was not assigned to any of these child abductions, um, but he was, paying attention to them and paying attention to the children's descriptions of this man. So he was thinking it's the same person Mm -hmm. and thinking he's a serial killer who also abducts children. And not many people believed this because, um, first of all, they had never investigated someone who was like this before. And they all think Gil is... Just, like, this young guy trying to make a name for himself. So, he's proposing something, like, outrageous. Yeah. And they literally laugh at him. They, yeah.
0: When he makes Which, this...
1: Oh God, when he... If I were a girl, and he kind of does say this in the documentary, when he turns out to be right, I'd be like, I told you, to, I told you, I told you, yeah, and right. I told you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <You're> all stupid. <laughs> oh, my God. But it was super, super unheard of. And, like, the whole of criminal history... There's no one on record before this, you know, being so diverse in the, the murder weapons, this kind of crime, and everything.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that he would kill someone when he just randomly breaks into their house, goes in there, kills them out of nowhere, and then, but, like, then, you know, sexually assaults children, but then leaves them alive, like... Yeah. I just don't understand it.
1: And I don't believe he has this moral code in his head. Like, oh, Oh, I wouldn't kill a child. Like, because you would do that to a child, though. And so I just don't... Maybe he didn't think it was worth his time, worth the thrill to kill a child. But, like, I don't know. Maybe he thought that
0: what he was doing to them would ultimately, like...
1: I mean, that would affect them
0: a lot more than killing them anyway. They had to grow up with that. Yeah. reality.
1: Ugh. That's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's so sad. Yeah. Like you said, disgusting. Mm-hmm. So, Linda Arthur, who was a crime scene technician for LA County Sheriff, is... She believes him, Gil, with his idea. And she tells him to keep pursuing it, even though people are literally laughing at him for it. So... Then a, a couple girls reported a tall Mexican man following them, and police check it out, and they take, um, I'm going to totally say his name wrong, Robles Arturo, I don't know, into custody, um, but basically, he he wasn't the guy. He was just a r- weird person who yeah, liked just, to follow men. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, women. women. <laughs>
0: They just they found like panties in his house mm-hmm. with like slits in them like Ugh.
1: yeah but photos
0: then, yeah a lot of pictures so then they're just like this guy's a weirdo but he's not your weirdo yeah we'll move
1: on <laughs> exactly May Fourteenth, nineteen eighty five day fifty eight at this point, Linda Arthur goes to investigate the Doy family. Um, William Doy was sixty six years old. And he was shot and killed. And his wife, Lillian, was raped, beat, and robbed. And he put thumb cuffs on her. Um, William managed to call 911 after being shot to save Lillian's life. And when police got there, she had ripped her thumbs apart to get out of the thumb cuffs. I can't imagine that pain and, like inflicting ugh. that on yourself and your desperation. Right. I wonder if she even felt it. She was probably
0: just so panicked and her adrenaline yeah. was so high that she probably just was like doing whatever <gasps> she could to get away. That, ugh, that goes like right through me. But I admire her for that. I mean, cause, cause like you said, that's like something that's really hard to do mm-hmm. to yourself and she's just like such a tough woman and such a fighter that she was willing to, like she knew what needed to be done for her to get out.
1: Yeah. And then... Around the same time. Wait, well, uh, she, she survived, though. She did, yeah, yeah. Because her husband had managed to call 911. So, um, around the same time or, like, the day later or something, at a construction site of a child abduction, they see the same footprint that they saw at the Zazara household. So, at this point, people, I think, are starting since the footprints are so similar um or are the same they are the same um people are starting to believe gill a little bit more that it could be the same as the child abductor and frank and frank salerno and gill both lose their partners at this time um like due to like being retired or something not like dying um so frank asks gill to be his partner And this is, like, a big deal because Gil's, like, the young guy, so he was really excited that Frank wanted him as a partner.
0: Right. He's, like, this big, goofy guy, and Salerno's this uh, really, like, tough, serious guy. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, they were not, people would not have typically paired them together. Yeah. Um and it was interesting hearing Frank Salerno's reasoning behind it one of them was he speaks Spanish oh yeah and i mean like that's actually like he's like yeah i mean this guy he's ambitious works hard he speaks spanish you know mm-hmm. it's like he's like shopping for oh, a, help him. like he had his pick of partners yeah he, he could pick anyone pick anyone he wanted and he picked gill mm-hmm. it's just cool and that they're like is
1: like the buddy cop good cop bad cop kind of thing like it works really well and like even one of um anastasia the six-year-old would later say that gil reminded her of her teddy bear And i thought that was so cute (laughs) i was like oh my god like he was just like this i guess like you looked at him and he was like a comforting guy yeah which yeah yeah june 28th 1985 which is day 103 At this point. Um, Patty Elaine Higgins is killed in Arcadia. And she was 32 years old. And he had cut her throat. And then stabbed her in the slash. Like, in the slit where he had cut her throat. Gosh. That is... Violent. I can't even... Yeah. That is messed up on another level. Like,
0: I I just... It just shows just the aggression behind it. Mm -hmm. Like, not only, like, was the litting someone's throat enough you also had to stab it too it yeah very aggressive
1: and the way it's like different too like now this is this is a knife wound he didn't shoot her um and i think i believe she also had like ligature marks and this is it's like he's experimenting with different ways and he finds it oh. fun to do that and it's disgusting and you have to be so messed up right so messed up Um, July 2nd, 1985, day 107, Arcadia police report another murder of Mary Cannon, who is 75 years old, and it's very, very similar to Patty Elaine Higgins, where her throat was slit, and she was only a few miles away. Although it's very different, there is that pattern, like Mm -hmm. he... He would kind of like he would like shoot a few people and then the next couple would be like stabbing, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting too. He's kind of like on a rotation of how he does things. Huh. Which they didn't say in the documentary. That's yeah. just my speculation. observation. Yeah. Huh. July 5th, 1985, day 110, Sierra Madre. Please. I feel like I said that weird, but I think that's right. Mm-hmm. The Sierra Madre police report a murder, and in the front of the house—actually, no, not a murder. Sorry, the front of the house had like fabric and blood on the windowsill, and the fabric is from a gardener's glove. So they know he's wearing, you know, oh. gear so that he doesn't leave any fingerprints. And they say Gil says he—they never found any fingerprints at any of the crime scenes. So he was careful. I mean, you know, to a point. Right and this home is 16 year old Whitney Bennett and she was beaten with a tire iron like really bad and the room was destroyed and Whitney says she only remembers going to bed and waking up already beaten so she had 42 lacerations and skull fractures and um so I wonder if maybe because she was beaten so bad she can't remember you know like memory loss or oh I see that could be it but they they didn't really specify or I'm thinking maybe she just was asleep for the whole thing and literally just woke up and was like in a lot of pain and like beaten right but I like feel he like
0: like knocked her out really soon into it
1: yeah so I don't know either way she doesn't remember and I don't know if that's like better or worse to not remember because you would feel like oh this gap of time I, I just can't remember and like that would be really horrible but also would you want to remember that that's a good point you know, and she's yeah. only 16 it's crazy
0: I and once again this is just such a a change from what's mm-hmm. already been happening like if I were to be looking at this case alone I'd unless there were like other beatings in the area I would say this, this it's not connected just be, because of the fact that um, it's so different and just aggressive. I would say that, like, might be an ex-boyfriend of hers or someone yeah. in the family like, that she knew. I don't know, some enemies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there was that shoe print in blood on her comforter. So the shoe print shows up again, and that is linking all these crimes together, which is why it's so important because without that, they couldn't definitively be linked. Mm-hmm. So at this point is when everybody admits that Gil is right, and he was right all along, and they should have listened to him from the beginning.
0: That was the, the, a cool part in it because I think when they see that shoe print, Frank Salerno recognized it right away, and he looks at him, and he's like, okay, tell me everything that's in your head right now. Yeah. Because he realized this guy's on to something. Yep. And so he wanted to hear everything he knew, and I mean, it's really cool because Gil has been following it for so Mm -hmm. long, and he knows of all the cases in the area and so he's able to
1: say names, dates, addresses, just off the top of his head. Because he, pay- he was the only one paying attention like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was super impressive.
0: Yeah, so I think that um, it was just a cool, like,
1: partner moment between the two yeah. of them.
0: Because it's kind of like, he, I don't know, Frank Salerno saw something in him and he was right.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that would, uh, again, that would just be a really good moment if I were Gil. Just... Yeah. I, it's it's terrible, but, like, to be, like, I, it's a moment you prove you know what you're talking about. You're not just this young right. guy. right? Yeah. So that is the end of the first episode of the documentary. So this will go into episode two, if you, like, want to follow it like that. Yeah. Uh,
0: Sorry. Just, like, talking about the episodes themselves, though, and how they're done, there were certain parts that I was, I would get kind of annoyed with. You know, they constantly switch over to the gun shooting and, like, they were really trying to dramatize it a little bit. Oh, they
1: do do that, yeah.
0: And then while someone was, like, talking, they'd still be, like, you can tell that the person had spent a lot of time in front of the camera. And so, like, if, if, like, the person looks, like, off in the distance, like, just thinking about something, they'll, like, record their face, like, as if, like... They're reflecting on the moment. I don't know. Yeah. It just was like really kind of cheesy to me at times. And I didn't like the constant switching back and forth between things. Yeah. At times. But then there were other times where I thought that they did a really cool job. Um, and then later on, I'll, I'll talk about it. There's one specific part that I was like, oh, oh, wow, I really okay. like that they did that. So I'll wait, talk wait, about what it. what
1: episode is it in? Do you it's the remember? fourth episode. Oh, okay. So, so, so I'll talk
0: about it next week. Yeah.
1: Because <laughs> we're going to do the first two this week and then the three, and four next week. Yeah, I would agree. I, As a whole, I think this is an excellent documentary. But mm-hmm. I do... I hate the little intermissions of dramatization they have. Mm-hmm. I, like, we could we, we could go without that. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I prefer my documentaries to be straightforward. I don't... Right. I don't... It's a documentary. I don't need dramatization. Like,
0: it's already dramatic enough. Just tell me yeah, what happened. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, in itself, like, on its own, it's already a crazy story.
1: Yeah. So... Um, at the top of episode two, they start going through just, like, the bullet point details of how dissimilar this guy is. So, they restate he's going after men, women, young, old, children, um, weapons changed from using knives, guns, strangulation, um, a tire iron, like, beatings, and so it's just, like, very, very different like we've been saying and the documentary doesn't even cover all of the attacks like Mm -hmm. they go they flash through a bunch of names of other attacks um so you like see the names up on the screen but they don't even have the time to talk about everybody so right
0: i know because i was even doing a little bit of research outside of this just trying to because there's one story actually i want to bring up that my one my one thing um there's one story that i always Attributed to this case and i believe that i heard it on okay i might be wrong but there's two pod other uh crime podcasts that i like to listen to mm-hmm. so crime junkies they're awesome they are I, yeah definitely listen to them or um morbid
1: yeah i listen to both of them yeah they're my faves
0: i really like them too um so anyway i think it was in my crime i was watching crime junkies and that, or listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they were talking about the Night Stalker. I thought that they mentioned that there was, and I guess I could go back and listen. Okay, so the story goes that there was the husband sleeping down on the couch, I believe. Or he was out of town now that I think about it. See, I don't know the story very well. It's off the top of my head. But anyway, he ends up, getting shot I believe and the wife is upstairs in the bedroom and hears this and so she gets their shotgun and has it ready and is holding it aimed at the door and when he opens the door she pulls the trigger only to find out that it's not loaded because her husband had unloaded it the weekend before because her grandkids were visiting yeah that Specific story has scared the crap out of me. Yeah, I don't know why. That's my my one like just, and that's why the night stalker would freak me out so bad because it was just, it just seemed like things went his way. He got away with so much, and there were and because there are a lot more crimes that are talked about in this that are not talked about in this documentary. Right, because he just was able to. He just freely walked around too it's not like he wore a face
1: mask but yeah he didn't take any of the, any of those kind of like precautions like everyone who came in contact with him knew what he looked like right all he did was wear gloves
0: yeah it's just it just shocks me so i think that it is the night stalker i really want to say it is but we were both trying to find that story yeah. and we couldn't find it so if anyone knows who i'm relating that to let me know, please, because yeah, I'm really curious. I love to know
1: too. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought I'd throw that in there that we are covering this documentary. So there are a lot more attacks um, that just aren't covered. Um, so July 6, 1985 is day 111 of this investigation. Lorraine Rodriguez woke up to a loud noise, and she thinks it was her husband, John. And John is a deputy police officer, and so he checks around the house when she realizes, no, it's not her husband, it's someone else. And Lorraine noticed a window that they had never opened because it was painted shut, was shoved all the way up, and John sees footprints. And um, that matched the footprint to, um, they now know, it's an Avia shoe. That was very uncommon because it was a brand new shoe at the time. So now that they know what kind of shoe this footprint that's showing up at all these crimes is, they track down the sales and they do believe it's a black shoe. So there were only, after tracking it down, they find out there were only six black 440 Avias in the United States. Five of them shipped out to Arizona and one was shipped out to Los Angeles. The odds of that. That's insane. That is crazy. So they know now if they see someone wearing a Black Avia shoe in Los Angeles, that's your guy because he mm-hmm. was the only person in Los Angeles who would have that shoe.
0: Right. And obviously, you can't really announce that to the public because then he no. would know. Yeah. So it's only like, what they're waiting for is once they catch the guy, look at his shoes. Then you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's like your instant connection to all these other cases. Yeah. Oh man, um, yeah. that is just insane. I like yeah. it's just such a such a cool investigation tactic. I just when I first heard that, like in the documentary, he they say like that he that this one guy he's like the uh evidence investigator or something Mm -hmm. like that he's the one that drove out there and he spoke to uh the the creator of this shoe yeah i'm thinking this is like this is just uh grunt work i don't know like this is just stuff that like no one wants to do and it's not gonna get anywhere with Mm -hmm. it and he's like, "Oh, well, now we know exactly the type of the sole of the shoe." I'm like, "Okay, that's cool, but whatever." But then to come and find out that it all it breaks down to all of this this yeah. one shoe, that's cool. That's, that's yeah, insane. that's very
1: important and useful. Yeah. yeah. May 29th, nineteen eighty five, Mabel Bell and Florence Lane, Lang, are re-looked at so this is a case that had happened months earlier because again the the last thing was in july so they're going back and looking at this case of two elderly sisters they were in their 80s who were attacked and beaten in their home and mabel bell was 83 and unfortunately she died from her injuries but florence lived Mm -hmm. and mabel was taped to the bed with electrical tape um and sexually assaulted and beaten with a hammer and um, there was an alarm clock on their floor that had a partial shoe print on it that guess mm-hmm. what Matched the Avia yeah. so they re-looked at this now that they knew the shoe was an Avia and they were like wow this is the same guy as well so now they can link these two women to him as well and something that shows up for the first time with this case too with these two sisters is um that he took the time afterwards to have a snack in their house yeah (sighs) and he drew a pentagram on the wall and on one of the woman's legs in lipstick so this is also the first time we see that pentagram image it's strange, because if, I don't know, if, like, Satanism is your thing, you'd think that would show up all the time. Like, why right. was it so random? So, I mean, he's famous for, like, his pentagram and whatever, you know, that iconic... No, mm-hmm. oh, I don't want to say iconic, but, like, the famous image that we'll talk about later with him on on his palm. And, like, I feel like it's mostly just an act. Like, he's not really a devil worshiper or whatever like maybe he is but like i the, i feel like it's just part of to make him creepier he's not really he doesn't really care right i go back and forth with that um well i guess we'll talk more about it at the very
0: end when we kind of talk about after I'll, t- I'll talk about it more afterwards um just because i i have a lot of thoughts on that because i want to say that it's just because he is just trying to be as scary as possible. Yeah. Because that's, I feel like he, that's genuinely what he's trying to do. But then there's another side of me that kind of wants to say that maybe he is a little bit, just based off of how he acts in the future, which we'll talk about later. Yeah.
1: So in Eagle Rock, there was an attempted kidnapping that he, the killer, tries to do, and he drove away. From this attempted kidnapping, but was pulled over for a traffic violation, um, and I don't remember what it was. Maybe he like was speeding or whatever. It was yeah, I can't It wasn't a serious was. thing. But but as the cop is like going back to his cop guard, like write a citation or whatever, he hears on the radio about his attempted kidnapping that he just did, and they said his description. Yeah, and he panics, but <laughs> and he runs away and escapes but the f- weird thing is he had the time to draw a pentagram on the hood of this car before running away and he gets away i'm like how how did the cop not see him do that or able to catch him on time he takes and the time to write a draw something it's so
0: dangerous for him to have done that because by doing that he's basically saying like hey i'm your guy yeah um making if he would have gotten caught doing that or like right after that he would have been guilty and then he they would have like realized what he'd done. Yeah. Cuz it's only cuz he
1: drew that pentagram. Mhm. And it's another one of those cases where a cop is so close. If he had just arrested him then. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that happens a lot in these cases where they're like caught by something as simple as a traffic violation and right. they get away. I know, I know that happens with Ted Bundy, too. Oh, yeah, it
0: does. hmm But, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that this guy, too, is just a lot, almost lucky with a lot of the things. Like, they yeah. just miss him mm-hmm. a lot of the time. It sucks. Because, yeah, with, like, their different surveillances that they end up doing, too, that you'll go into. Oh,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. So the car ends up being a dead end because there's no prints, which leads me to wonder, what did he draw it with? If he didn't, like, use his finger to draw it, and what did he have on him? Because it was red. I don't know. Oh, it was red? Yeah. I think. I thought it was drawn in the dust. Was it? I don't remember. I don't know
0: if they show a picture of it, or maybe I just imagined that. Hmm. But I kind of pictured that they drew it in the dust of the car. But oh, you're right, he, he probably have used did. his finger, but, but he yeah. no- they would have noted, oh, he was wearing gloves, but they, they didn't talk did about that. They didn't get any prints off of it. Maybe it's his knuckle, like the, the front of his uh, knuckle. Maybe. Like oh, heat. well, also,
1: okay, I guess I forgot to mention, but the car before, it wasn't processed right away, and it sat in, like, this mm, junkyard or whatever for a very long time, and by the time they got to it, I I oh I do remember them saying that the sun had like burnt away any evidence that could have been useful. Oh, you're right. I remember that now. Yeah.
0: So that's probably what happened. Yeah, because they they left it and it said hold for prints. Yes. But they specifically were talking about how there are so many different jurisdictions Mm -hmm. in California, and it's almost competitive that this car was in a different jurisdiction and even like for some reason
1: they weren't willing to work
0: with them very easily yeah
1: i think that's so crazy because yeah they do talk about that and how you could drive five minutes down the same road in la Mm -hmm. and be in three different jurisdictions because the lines like the boundary lines are so weird and it's just
0: so... It's so sad that that's what helps him get away. It's, yeah. It's just the stubbornness of someone else. they don't want to help each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because... they' people are dying. Yeah.
1: I feel like that should be your number one concern, not being... Famous. Yeah. Not to, like, bash on these people, but I kind of am. Because yeah. that was... That was the big thing that Gil and Frank were saying, um... Or someone else in the documentary said it. I don't remember. But who mm-hmm. said it. But, um yeah because of the the warring jurisdiction people wanted to be famous they wanted not exactly famous but they wanted to be the one to solve the case so they weren't willing to share information with each other and that is just a major detriment Mm -hmm. to your public safety right Ugh, that's frustrating yeah july 7th 1985 day 112 um Gil becomes convinced there is someone in his house, so he, this is the detective, he searches around the house and then puts the TV on to calm down and the phone rings. So it's even affecting like him now at home. Mm -hmm. And when the phone rings, it's Linda Arthur telling him that a neighbor of hers had just been raped. And I feel like that's like, Some kind of, you know, you hear about those things where like on some sort of like subconscious psychic level, like he was paranoid someone was in his house and something was happening at the same time in someone else's house.
0: So close. Well, I mean, it wasn't super close by, but this woman that called him was one of his friends. She was the one that was supporting him from the start on his opinions. Mm -hmm. That's the same woman.
1: Yeah. So it's
0: just so shocking that at that same moment, yeah i mean i think you're right i think that he had like some kind of sense Mm -hmm. he was so invested in the case that there was like he was being haunted while it was happening in real time
1: yeah uh so linda and her friends were in her hot tub outside at 3 a.m and around that time is when they decide to go inside for the night and her neighbor, Sophie Dickman, is calling from her window, like, Linda, Linda, because she knows Linda is, she works for the police mm-hmm. department. And it's only 10 minutes later, after they go inside, that yeah. they hearing mm-hmm. her yelling. And she's, so Sophie is calling from her window that she's been robbed, raped, and handcuffed to the bed. And she had pulled her bed that she was handcuffed to, to the window to be able to open it and yell out to Linda.
0: That's so scary. That it's, is super
1: scary. There was
0: literally a hot tub with
1: several women in it right next door. Probably like 20 feet away, mm-hmm. I imagine. Someone who worked. She wasn't a cop. She was, she worked in forensics. But someone who works for the police department She's was literally across the street outside while this was happening. Has dealt with these cases. Yeah.
0: No, I don't even think it's across the street. I think it's like right next door. Was it? I don't know the way Oh yeah cuz she said it. there was a wall right, between the houses. Right. She just had to look at the through the yeah. fence. She'd oh, like step gosh. up onto something yeah. and look over the fence to see her. So I imagined it was like it was her next-door neighbor
1: literally That's right so there. Scary to think about. Like and I remember Linda in the documentary saying like she's like she couldn't believe he was literally just on the other side of her wall while she was outside with her friends and none of them heard or saw anything. Right. and it could have been them that's you know? so
0: ballsy on his part yeah. how does he know that she's i mean how does he know that this his victim's not gonna yell out and he and then they'll hear and call the police I yeah mean, they're right there he's like
1: i'll take the chance because he just doesn't give a shit. so crazy yeah so thankfully she she lived and thankfully she was able to get to the window and mm-hmm. alert linda right away but right. unfortunately that's a terrifying terrifying thing that happened to her Mm -hmm. but um so Gil and Frank are both working like extremely hard hours at this point obviously and they're barely sleeping and um Gil's wife Pearl recalls that he they were they would fight because she would tell him to like take a nap and he'd be like I'm not gonna take a nap I'm gonna go to work because he was so like I have to solve this I have to solve this Mm -hmm. and that's a really, I mean, as a wife too, I'm not a wife, but like I imagine that would be, it would be really hard to go through, like to watch your husband suffer, like, like mentally right. like that, right. you know? Yeah. So July 7th, 61 year old Joyce Nelson is killed in Monterey Park and she was a very energetic and like loving woman and her granddaughter colleen was having her 14th birthday party so they were going over to joyce's house and don who is her son is the one who had to find her oh. and that's just that's such a terrible thing right for any child to see like he's an adult but you're that's your mom yeah you she He's her child, you know? And you don't want to see that.
0: And he was being interviewed. and him. So it was him, his wife, and then his daughter were all being interviewed in this and, like, kind of how they felt and, like, what was going on at that time. Mm Because they all have, like, really good vivid memories of it.
1: Yeah. And Don said something, like, crazy. Is that Don said about his mom that she... Was always afraid, like her whole life, of being raped. He said, Mm -hmm. and that she kind of had this like premonition that someday she would be a rape victim, and that's uh, so crazy to live with. But another thing, unfortunately, she she did die, but she had fought him, and she Mm -hmm. was not raped. So, and I her in the documentary, her granddaughter Colleen says she remembers being so thankful for that, thankful that her grandmother was a fighter and that mm-hmm. at least she was spared of that because she fought him
0: right yeah like it was very obvious that there was a struggle and she fought him a- she fought him off a lot and so then he didn't end up raping her and then that's when she- he went over to linda's neighbor's house yes mm-hmm. right so that actually had happened in the same night
1: yeah and like the way gill explains it is like he didn't get off sexually with Joyce because she bought him. So he had, he went over to Sophie. That's satisfaction. Ew. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You know, just, like, it's I, disgusting, uh, but, like, that is how he saw it. Yeah.
0: I, I'm sure, I'm sure Gil's right. It's just disgusting. Yeah. It's so nasty.
1: I don't know. And maybe it's only because he had killed Joyce earlier that he didn't kill Sophie, you know? Right. So but it, it's it's like, weird. It's not like
0: it's he hasn't killed multiple people in one night either though. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it, you never know what it's going to be, honestly.
0: I wonder if there was more to it, like the reasoning why he wouldn't kill someone like if they listened to what he told them to do, then he wouldn't kill them or if they if they weren't scared enough, he wouldn't kill them. Yeah. I just want to know what What it was. There's got to be something that just makes him decide not to.
1: Yeah. I don't know. So around this point... Oh, and before I move on from that, Sophie and Joyce's houses were less than a mile away. And like you said, it was on the same night. So they were very close to each other. And he's just easily able to just like hop right over to someone else's house. And it's that's insane. And how
0: does he know... I mean, there must be some sort of surveillance because how does he know that this this woman lives home alone? Both these women live home al- at home alone.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, later when I was looking it up, he didn't know because um, I, I had, like, I'll talk about it later. I had looked into, like, the psychology of the thing oh. and it was exciting to him. It was the thrill of him to just randomly select a house and be like what's gonna be inside he didn't know he didn't plan any of it out he didn't select any victims he selected the houses you know so he would never know what's gonna be inside but that was exciting for him so yeah so weird and then also i thought because you had told me that story you said earlier about the woman who with her gun Mm -hmm. um not working i thought it could be if it is this case if it is the Night Stalker that you were talking mm-hmm. about, I th- was kind of thinking it might be Joyce because it was her granddaughter Colleen's birthday. Oh. So I was like, oh, maybe, maybe it was her. But I have absolutely no proof of that because I didn't mention it in right. the documentary. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. So about 200 officers are working on this case at this point. And there are calls of, like, tips and leads, left and right, and they have to go investigate every single one of them. And they could be absolutely, and most of them were, absolutely, like, ludicrous, like, not relating to the actual case at all, but Mm -hmm. they had to go check it out. So that would be absolutely exhausting. And July 8th, 1985, day 113, Laurel Erickson is a, who she was a reporter of KNBC news and she calls asking about the avia shoe and the police are like how the hell do you know this cuz this is not mm-hmm. public knowledge right so someone inside the department or obviously let slip somewhere and how she found out mm-hmm. um and they tell her like you absolutely cannot blow this. You will blow this entire investigation if you do a story about this shoe. Because he'll know.
0: Yeah. And he'll stop wearing them. And there's no way to connect it. He'll get rid of them. And then there's no way to connect him.
1: Yeah. And she says, well, okay. I won't do the story about the shoe if you agree, Gil and Frank, to do an interview with me. An exclusive interview. So, They do agree to that, but Gail and Frank are pissed. They do not Mm -hmm. like this woman because, as we'll see later, she creates several roadblocks like this for them where she will threaten to go public with details. As a reporter, like, that's her job, you know, but um, it would seriously create hindrances for them.
0: That really does annoy me, though, because they're like, why would you put other people's, like, this is literally an investigation you're putting people's lives in danger by yeah. by d- releasing this information. Like do you really want that on your head?
1: Right. I just, yeah. For I a mean, story? Like an Exactly. For a story.
0: I mean there's other ways that you can what you can do to help this investigation to save lives instead of making it harder on the police. Yeah. That are trying to just stop this guy.
1: Yeah. I that's what <laughs> I wanted to be a journalist and like I still do but like that's why I want to do like entertainment journalism yeah I don't want to be in the position to ever have to like do or write over. someone like that or screw someone over like I'm like that's why I write about what movies are great this week right. <laughs> like that's what I do. so but yeah that kind of journalism is like and she was I wouldn't be into ragging
0: it. about it too she was like really happy with herself yeah because she's, she's like, I got the scoop on
1: this exclusive interview by having this leverage, and I don't want to like hate on her, but at the same time, she did kind of annoy me throughout this documentary. Because as a cop, I kind of like, and I the documentary definitely does set you up to feel more sympathetic to Gil and Frank, but like I yeah. was, I I was mad when they were mad. So right,
0: yeah, 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 you're right.
1: So. As I said earlier, Gil and Frank are working about 18 hours a day. And it becomes, like, this strain on their lives. But especially for um, Gil. And he and his wife kind of... They have... They're starting to have, like, problems. Because, like, he's tired all the time. So that, of course, makes you more prone to, like, arguments and things like that. And she leaves... Oh, she doesn't leave yet. But like, I'm just gonna preface this. Um, she and the kids leave the house until the investigation is over, mm-hmm. because it gets like really close to their house at one point, so it's just not safe. Right. So, um, that would be like super, super hard too. To like, when you come home, you're not even coming home to your wife and kids, and it just like consumes right. your life as a detective. But
0: then at the same time, I think he, I think he understood because he's I I would want my family gone if there's like yeah, a killer yeah. in the area and I can't leave I'd be like okay you guys you guys need to go
1: yeah he definitely did because I mean like he, he leave in the
0: middle of the night and then leave them
1: yeah it and wasn't so, safe
0: yeah and this happens so close by how does and it's not like the killers they're caught he's still out there so while Gil's gone then they're home alone yeah in the middle of the night
1: mm-hmm july 9th 1985 so going back to that car the document we already said it but the documentary at this point that's when it goes back to that impounded car and says it was out in the sun and there's no forensic value so all the way we mentioned it earlier and then it's july 9th when gill and frank are finally able to get their hands on it because of that jurisdiction war with all the red tape blocking them but What they did find in the car on that day, July 9th, is a business card to a dentist in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And so their killer, they go to the dentist. Um, He had an appointment on July 3rd at the dentist office. And he had written, his name was Richard Mena, and given a fake address. So they're like, this is probably the guy. And the dentist is working with the police and gives them his x-rays and he has really messed up teeth disgusting teeth the
0: mint (laughs) yes that's
1: the mint um and he has an impacted tooth that's going to be really hurting so the dentist is like he's gonna come back to this office to fix that Mm -hmm. so they put two officers in the office and they're gonna just go undercover and wait for him to come back
0: well, here, I don't think that you elaborated enough on um, the fact that they find this business card and he had that appointment days oh, yeah. before he actually had this appointment. No, I mean days after he actually had this appointment. So he had already been there. Yeah. If they would have found this right away, then they would have known and he been able there. to catch him sooner. Yeah, I did forget to say that. So that's like that's an annoying part. Like that mm-hmm. actually messed them up for this investigation and prevented them from catching him because of this stupid jurisdiction.
1: Yeah, war. It's so so. Oh, it's so frustrating. Literally, if they were allowed to look at that car earlier, they could have mm-hmm. already had him in custody on July third when he came in for that appointment. So, oh, it's seriously so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's the end of episode two. And that's where we'll stop for this week. And we'll finish yeah. next week. Yeah, so um I'll have to think of another thing to make. To, yeah, another
0: thing to make next oh next week. Uh yeah, so anyway, that was i don't wanna say more because we're gonna go into it more. Mm-hmm. So just listen up for next week.
1: There's still forward to it. A ton to cover, so yeah, this would have been a, like, too long an episode if we kept going. Right,
0: so. right. So maybe if you uh, want to, you can watch in between now and next week. Yeah. So the next week you can uh, see the understand the full full thing.
1: Yes. And then also next week I'm going to throw in some stuff that wasn't in the documentary. So come back for that as well.
0: Yes. All right. Well, on that note, I'm Casey. And I'm Emily. And you just heard a sprinkle of sugar, a dash of murder.